Good morning. One of my personal goals this morning was to not make this greeting time be 15 minutes long, uh, which sometimes I do. So I think it was only five or six. Uh, we're now going to continue with, with our sermon. And it's the first sermon in our series, A God-Lived Life. Um, so this morning, as we start our sermon, here's the question that I want to ask you. Um, when you hear the phrase, good neighbor, what pops into your mind? State Farm. I was wondering how many of you would say State Farm or would say Jake from State Farm, uh, or I guess Drake from State Farm, depending on the commercial. And then how many of you would even start thinking of music, and you'd start humming to yourself, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Uh, and I was just thinking about this this week, and this has got to be one of the most brilliant advertising campaigns in the last couple of years, because you think about it, an insurance company has used the phrase good neighbor so extensively that when you hear good neighbor, you think of the insurance company. It's, it's amazing. Um, and I, I have nothing against insurance companies. I'm not going to tell you who my insurance company is. But uh, I think we would all agree that a good neighbor is, is more than just somebody who has khakis and a polo and a headset on and is ready to answer your calls at any hour of, of day or night. Um, like in real life, as my kids say, for real, for real, what does a good neighbor really look like? What's a good neighbor? Is it the person that lives next door to you that feeds your cats when you're gone on vacation? Uh, is it the person in the line ahead of you at the coffee shop who just out of the goodness of their own heart, they buy your coffee as well as theirs? Um, or is it that lady from your neighborhood who just volunteers at everything. She's on the school board and the HOA and the Rotary Club and just every possible thing else that you could think of. Um, is that a good neighbor? What does a good neighbor look like in real life? State Farm aside, what picture is coming into your mind when you think of a good neighbor? My goal for the end of our sermon this morning is that when you hear this phrase, good neighbor, you will not be thinking of Jake from State Farm. You also will not be thinking of anybody else, but actually you will be thinking of you. That you are a good neighbor. Um, this is really the theme of our sermon. This is what Jesus does in our sermon text today through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus teaches us what it looks like, what it means to truly be a good neighbor. So we'll start at the beginning. Um, on the day that Jesus taught his parable, he is teaching to a crowd of people, like he did all the time. And on this one particular day, a person stands up in that crowd, and it's a man who is trying to look good in front of everybody. And here's how Luke tells it to us. He says, on one occasion, a, a law expert, an expert in the law, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So from this question, there's two things you can tell about this guy. The first one is that he's, he's rather proud. And the way that it's talked about throughout this text, this is someone who's trying to prove and show how good he is because he is a law expert and he does follow the law. But the second thing we can learn about this man from his question is something about the way he thinks about his relationship with God. He is thinking that his relationship with God is transactional, right? That if you want to get something from God, you have to do something for God. And that's not a crazy thought, because we know that this is how our world works. 
right? If you want to get an A on your test, you have to study. If you want to get a driver's license, you have to learn how to drive. If you want to get paid, you have to go to work, right? Like this is how our world works. If you want to get something, you have to do something. And so our natural assumption tends to be that it works the same way with God. If we want something from God, we have to do something for God. Uh, clearly, that's how this man's heart is operating. Now, as good Lutherans, including several brand new Lutherans who just joined our church, we just finished Bible Basics class, we've talked about all of this, and we're saying, this is not how it works, that to get something from God, we have to do something. The whole message of the Bible is, is counterintuitive. It's a surprise, but it's that Jesus did all of the things for us, right? We're saying we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by grace. That's what the Bible teaches, and it does. But with all that in mind, it's, it's so interesting to see how Jesus responds to this man because Jesus does not immediately cut him off and say, excuse me, sir, no, we are saved by grace and not by good works. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he answers this man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, by asking him another question. Jesus says, well, you're a law expert. Uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this man knows all about the law, so he knows the textbook answer to this question. He quotes an Old Testament Bible verse that kind of sums up the law. He says, I've got this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That would kind of sum up the Ten Commandments. This is a summary of God's law. And, and Jesus says, well, that's really good. Good answer. Do this and you will live. It's kind of a surprising answer from Jesus. But it's a correct answer. As you think about it, if this man actually loved God with all of his heart and all of his soul, all of his strength, and all of his mind, if this man truly loved his neighbor as much as he loved himself all the time, what kind of a man would he be? He would be perfect. <laughs> he would be in the image of God. He would be like Adam and Eve before the fall into sin. If he really lived that way, of course he would get to go to heaven. So there's the answer. Go ahead and, and do this and you will live. But Jesus knows that the conversation's not done. And that's why he's talking to this man in this way. Instead of telling him the answer, no, you're saved by grace, Jesus is helping him to figure out the answer for himself. He knows that this proud law expert is not going to let this go. Because perfection is, is unattainable. The bar is set too high. And Jesus knows this proud law expert is going to find a way to try to lower that bar. And it says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, though? So do you see what he's doing? He's, he's recited the law, love God with everything you've got, and be perfectly loving to your neighbor as yourself. But he's looking for a loophole. He's looking for a shortcut. He's looking for a way to feel like he has kept this law, even though he knows deep down there is no way he has perfectly loved all of his neighbors as himself. So he figures he can find a loophole by narrowing the definition of his neighbor. Saying, yeah, I've loved my neighbor as myself, but I mean, not everybody is counting as my neighbor. Uh, do we ever do the same thing, I wonder? Maybe not out loud, 
Certainly not in a direct conversation with Jesus in a public forum, uh, but maybe in our heads do we ever have this conversation. We read verses from the Bible, and God is telling us to love people. And we are saying, yes, absolutely, totally agree, God. I absolutely need to love people. Yep. And that works for my family, and that works for my friends, and that works for the people who are like me, and that works for the people that I enjoy hanging out with. Um, can we really love everyone, though? What about the person who doesn't love us back? What about the person who makes our life miserable? What about the person whose worldview is just so utterly foreign to ours that we cannot understand why they think that way? It makes no sense. What about the person who, if, if I love them and if I help them, it is going to drain me of my time and my resources and my energy, and it is going to exhaust me, and I have a lot of problems going on myself that I need my energy for. What about the person who hates me? What about a person who would consider themselves to be my enemy? I mean, there's no way to love everybody, right? Well, Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. Jesus doesn't lower the bar. Instead, helping us to figure it out for ourselves, Jesus just tells us a story. And here was his story, which we talked about with the kids. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. I don't want to have anything to do with this injured man lying in the road. So we talked about this with the kids. We, we visualized it with some pictures. But maybe you're wondering, what is the priest and the Levite's problem? Like, what is wrong with these guys? And I think if you understand a few cultural details, it might make a little more sense why they reacted the way that they did. Um, so here's the first cultural detail I think it's helpful to know. According to Old Testament law, priests were not allowed under any circumstances to come into contact with a dead body, unless it was a member of their immediate family. It was just one of those symbolism rules that was in there, but that was what the law was. Secondly, if any Jewish person came into contact with a dead body, they would be considered ceremonially unclean for seven days. So they could not go to work. They could not go and visit people. Uh, it was kind of like going into quarantine. So if this badly beaten man on the side of the road ends up to actually be a, well, now he's dead, man on the side of the road, it is going to be tremendously inconvenient for the next week of their life. So this is one of the factors that's there. The second cultural thing it's important to know, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very notorious road. You can visit this road today. I had the chance to go to Israel, I guess it was about 10 years ago, and I took a picture of this road. It's called Wadi Kelt and it's not hard to find the road because it's a canyon. And it's just been this way for years and years and years. But it is dark and windy. I don't know how, how well you can see this picture, but it's the type of situation where no matter how sunny it is, it's always dark in here. And there's so many twists and turns, you can't see if there's somebody around the next corner until you literally get right up to them. And so this was a road that was just notorious for people getting robbed and people getting attacked. Um, in Psalm 23... When King David writes, 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, people think he was talking about this road. This is the valley of the shadow of death. People were constantly getting robbed and attacked on this road. So as the priest and the Levite are going through there, it's completely silent. They're wondering if somebody's around the next corner. They're walking as fast as they can without looking awkward and scared. They get around the corner and, yep, there's a guy over there and I don't know what's going on, but I am just going to keep on going. Maybe we can relate to late at night, a part of town we do not feel safe in, and that feeling of discomfort. Some of this is also a, a cultural thing that is here. When he said the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody's like, oh yeah, this is, this is a scary place. But there's one other cultural detail that maybe negates these two, because now we're understanding where the priest and Levite are coming from a little bit, but consider this. There were no emergency services in place 2,000 years ago to help a man in this position, right? The priest and the Levite today would dial 911, or they'd probably dial 311, and they would make sure this man gets some help, and they would keep on going, and they don't have to deal with it. You didn't have those services in 33, 32 AD. If they left this man here and they did not help him, he would die alone. They knew that. They still walked on by. But then comes the plot twist in Jesus' story. One more man comes down the road, and unlike the priest and the Levite, he sees the man in need, and he immediately is filled with compassion. He gets off of his donkey. He takes off his robes. He administers first aid to the best that he can using oil and wine, those basic medicinal supplies. He bandages this man's wounds, and he takes him to the nearest town, sets him up at an inn, pays for his care, pays for his ongoing care into the future, it's a lot more than, than picking up somebody's coffee who's behind you in line. Um, so it, it's quite the surprising, over-the-top act of love, but what is really surprising about it, the, the biggest plot twist of all, is that the one who helped was a, kids, how do we say it? Samaritan. He's a Samaritan. So I don't know if the word Samaritan means anything really to you, but back in Jesus' time, the Jews and the Samaritans just absolutely hated each other. Uh, and there was a whole history here. What had happened, essentially, was, as you know, the Jewish people went into exile in Babylon for like 70 years-ish. And most of them went, but some of the Jewish people had stayed in the, in the Promised Land. There were just a few of them. And what they had done is they had kind of mingled in with the heathen nations around them. They had intermarried. They had mixed some of their worship customs and stuff. So when the, you know, the original Jews came back, they now had this group of people who they referred to as half-breed Jews. You're not truly Jewish anymore because you've mixed with these other nations. When the Jews came back and built their temple, they did not allow like the Samaritan Jews to build it with them. You're not part of Israel anymore. So the Samaritan Jews went and built their own temple in the north. And everybody down in the south said, well, that one is a heathen temple, and it doesn't count. But it was just generations and generations of conflict. If the Jewish people were going to go through Samaria, instead of going through the main road, they would take this very difficult side way all the way around, just so they would not have to set one foot on that dirty Samaritan soil. This was just the way that it was. So I was trying to think of the modern-day equivalent of this, and I thought, Auburn fan versus Alabama fan. And I thought, no, that's not nearly what it is. It's probably more like um, Israelis versus Palestinians. Or maybe if you want to go back a few decades into the, the troubles in Ireland, the loyalists versus the republicans. 
Um, or maybe if you want to look to Iraq, you've got Sunni Muslims versus Shiite Muslims. But it, it's one of these conflicts where politics is involved, religion is involved, it's gone for generations, everybody knows somebody in their family who's been hurt from the other side. You probably got a story if you walk through their part of town, you got stitches because someone hit you with a rock. It's just this violent hatred going for hundreds of years between these two groups. So, in Jesus' story, who knows what this Samaritan is doing walking down by Jericho and Jerusalem. He's asking for trouble. He's taking a risk. But when he sees this injured man by the side of the road, who's supposed to be one of his Jewish enemies, he just forgets all about the risk. Human compassion takes over, and he helps him. So, you guys know this story. I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is a pretty famous story, but here is really the heart of it. Why did he do it? Why did the Good Samaritan help when nobody else would? Well, the answer is that unlike the priest and the Levite, and unlike this law expert that Jesus is telling the story to, unlike all of them, the Samaritan was simply not thinking about himself. He wasn't trying to gain respect or street cred by helping this injured man. There's no street cred to be joined for a Samaritan that's helping a Jew. And he wasn't worried about if the roles were switched, if that man would have helped him, because he probably wouldn't have. Um, he wasn't worried about how this might inconvenience him or mess up his schedule for the rest of the day. He wasn't thinking about himself. He just saw a fellow human being in need, and he loved him, and he served him, and he helped him. So now the story comes to a close, and Jesus asks the legal expert, he says to him, which of these three do you think was a good neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The answer is obvious. It's the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus tells the law expert, go and do likewise. So, it's important that we see the point of this parable. This is one that gets told so many times. The lesson is, be a good neighbor and be nice to people. But there's a deeper point here that Jesus is making. You think about the context. Jesus is telling this story to a man who knows the law. He knows all the ins and outs of the law that God gave the Jewish people through Moses. He knows all the ins and outs of these extra rabbinic laws that have been added over the years. He's a law expert. He knows all about the law. But when he talks about the law, when he looks at God's law, what is his angle? It's all about him. Right? Remember his opening question for Jesus? He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I prove to God and to everyone else how good I am? The reason he was so interested in keeping God's law is that he wanted to see what he could get out of it. Now comes the question, are we really that different? When we really think about it, are we really that different? As we read the Bible, as we hear God's law, as we hear the things that God wants us to do, and God wants us to gather with other believers and come to church, God wants us to serve and help our neighbor, God wants us to serve the poor, he wants us to love the people around us, we read these things and we get it, but too often our angle, our angle is that it's all about us. So that comes off in two ways. Either we are very slow to help people because we're counting the cost for us. Do I really have time to help this person? 
do I really have brain space to help this person sort through all their issues when I have got my own issues to deal with? How much time is this going to take me? How much money is this going to take me? What is it going to cost me to help this person? And so we have this instinctive delay before we help. That's one way that it looks. The other way that it looks is that we do help people all the time. We're super involved. We're volunteering constantly, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. We're doing it because it makes us feel superior to other Christians. We're one of the good ones. We actually live our faith. Uh, or we're doing it because it makes us look impressive to other people. It's going to look good on my resume. It's going to look good on my Instagram. So in the end, whether we end up helping actually or not, serving actually or not, very often as we're looking at God's laws and wanting to serve our neighbor and show love, we are making it all about us, whether we do it or not. In this parable, Jesus proposes a completely different approach to following God's law, a completely different motivation, and it, it is this, pure selfless love with no strings attached. Pure, selfless love with no strings attached. And Jesus didn't just talk about that kind of love and teach that kind of love. He demonstrated that kind of love himself. Because what is the story of the entire Bible? What is the purpose of Jesus' entire existence here on earth? It's the story of not just a single person, but an entire human race that lies beaten and bloodied by the side of the spiritual road. We have been ambushed by the devil. We've fallen into sin as a human race. And now we are suffering from the consequences and the pain that is caused by sin. Things like guilt and fear and suffering and death. And spiritually speaking, even really physically speaking, as you look at the struggle of life in this broken world, we are unable to help ourselves. We're unable to free ourselves from this. But then what happens? What's the story of the Bible? Jesus, the Son of God, comes down the road. And what does he do when he sees us? He immediately, instinctively, his heart goes out to us. He gets down off his horse. He takes off his robes. He does not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he makes himself nothing, taking on the form of a human being, the nature of a servant. And now having entered our world, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbles himself and he becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus takes our sin on himself and gives us his righteousness. And he takes the punishment that we deserve on himself and he gives us his peace with God. And he takes our death and our hell upon himself and he gives us his eternal life. When Jesus comes from heaven to earth, he's not thinking about what is he going to get out of it. He's not thinking about if the roles were switched, whether we would do the same thing for him. He's not worried about how much this might inconvenience him or cause him trouble. He simply sees human beings in need and he loves us. Pure, selfless love with no strings attached. And Jesus's pure selfless love for us covers over our flawed, often loveless lives. And it does something for us that, like the law expert, we could never do for ourselves. What Jesus has done for us actually does make us worthy in God's sight to inherit eternal life. And now that he's shown us 
what real love looks like, Jesus tells us at the end of the parable, here's his closing line, go and do likewise. Go and love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind. Go and show pure selfless love to your neighbor with no strings attached. But don't do it because it's all about you. Do it because this is an opportunity to reflect the love of Jesus into a world that needs to see it and hear it and experience it as much as it ever has before. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.